0: Yaakov chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, he says. In the Greek, it's noon and it literally would translate go now, but it's, it's a colloquial expression. It was actually a somewhat common expression in the first century, although Yaakov is the only one who uses it in the New Testament and he'll use it twice he uses it right here in verse 13 at the beginning of the verse and he'll use it again at the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 5 come now and we would we would say listen up uh, we'd say pay attention or or dial in it's an interjection that both gets the attention and goads the hearer come now <clears throat> okay now now we're listening come now he says You who save today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Up to this point in the letter, uh, Yaakov has been speaking to the larger church. They are the recipients. You know this, the dispersed church outside of Jerusalem, outside of Judea. And he's writing to Christians out there, all at this point in the mid-40s, Jewish people who are also believers in Yeshua as Messiah. So following after Jesus, and throughout the letter he has mostly called them brethren or beloved brethren, except you know for the last chapter, where he called them adulteresses and sinners and double minded. He really laid into them, but he did it because he loves them so much and we've been looking at this last week and on Sunday this is, this is a follower of Jesus a bondservant he calls himself of God through the Lord Jesus Christ who loves the church cares enough about the church not to shy away from the tough stuff but to teach truth and truth he teaches But now we come to a new section where from verses 13 in chapter 4 all the way through verse 6 of chapter 5 he's going to narrow the focus to a particularly self-absorbed group within the church. Again, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Come now, get this, listen up, he says. And he's addressing The presumptuous profiteer. If you want to outline this, that's number one in our outline. Pridefully self-ordained masters of their own destinies. He's talking to people who really think we're going to go and do this. We have control of our future. This is not a rebuke against business per se. It's against insolent income. Notice what he says, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go. He didn't say we're thinking about going or we'd like to go or we plan to go. He says we will go and make a profit. Now, he is speaking to a particular people. You're going to find out more about them in the ensuing verses here. But these are people whose future financial planning contains quite a load of arrogance. We're going to do this. Yeah, we're going to make a lot of bucks. And the Bible tells us, Proverbs 16.9, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Or Proverbs 19.21, Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. And so in verse 14, he says, Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. Does anybody? I'm not asking you have plans for tomorrow, but do you know what's going to happen Tomorrow, when you wake up and pop off your pillow and start your day, do you really know what's going to happen? He says, You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. You're gas. You are as insubstantial as that. Vapor is the word atmos, it's where we get our word atmosphere. And it speaks of a mist or a steam that's there and then gone. Of these same people. He's already referred to them back in chapter 1 verse 10. He said the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Because like flowering grass he will pass away. Now this mentality comes straight out of the Hebrew scriptures. Psalm 39 verse 5. Behold you have made my days as hand breaths. And my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. If I'm a mere breath, then what do I want my breath to say? If I'm just a vapor, before I expire, before I dissipate, what do I want to say? Proverbs 21, verse 6 says, The acquisition of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor, the pursuit of death. And that's what he's dealing with here. He's coming right at it. I find it very interesting. It's like bookends dealing with attitude toward money and wealth, that here we are in the mid-40s A.D., and Yaakov is addressing it in this earliest of letters. And we will see in the mid-60s A.D., 20 years later, Paul is addressing the same thing in 1 Timothy 6 when he writes to young Pastor Timothy. He says, be sure to teach them these things. Specifically, the rich among you, teach them these things. And I always knew when we got to Timothy, we were going to have to talk about these things. And here we are with Yaakov and we're coming right back to it again. This whole idea of the pursuit of wealth. This is a strong and dire warning. gets more dire. Against arrogant acquisition. And specifically against deceitful dealings as we'll see. Vapors. If we're a vapor, you know what that means? It means you can't hold coins. (laughs) It means you can't carry a wallet. If you're a vapor, you can't hold on to anything. The best thing you can do is invest Eternally. As Jesus said in Luke 12.33, Sell your possessions, give to charity, make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. And then in Luke 16.11, Jesus said, If you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? In other words, the only valid use for unrighteous wealth on earth is investment in the coming kingdom. And you might say, well, okay, but I've got to pay my bills. Yeah, and the electricity is going to go someday. I've got to pay for my propane. Well, that's gas too. <laughs> I've got to do this, I have to use money for my business, for, for, my, for my occupation, for my income, I have to survive. All of this is going away. None of this is what really matters. So he's saying we should be paupers on the street. You know what? The radical reality is, is if we sold all we had and we sought first the kingdom and his righteousness, Jesus said, and all these things will be added to you as well, well, I've never experienced that. Well, have you, you know, gotten rid of everything and <laughs> just sought the kingdom? Now, I know that's, that's a little radical, and most of us are like, look, Rick, I'm here on a Wednesday night. Isn't that enough? <laughs> you know, what are we talking about here? Well, we're really talking about pursuing wealth because we think that in it we will find security. And we never do. Verse 15, he says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Now, understand, this is more than a motto. Lord willing, Lord willing. We throw that motto out every now and then. It's more than that. Literally, he says, instead of your saying, if the Lord wills, we will also do this or that. Consider Paul's perspective on this. He said in Acts chapter 18, verse 21, I will return to you again if God wills. In 1 Corinthians four nineteen, he says, "I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills." First Corinthians sixteen verse seven, I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. And I like the way the Hebrew pastor said it, chapter six verse one. He said, "Let us press on to maturity." And then in verse three of that chapter, he says, "And this we will do if God permits." See, even my spiritual maturity has to do with the will of God and putting it into his hands, his desire. And this is, and get this, for the whole rest of our time tonight, what Yaakov is doing here at the end of his letter is laying out a spiritual attitude for living in the last days. Verse 16, As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Now, we use verse 17 to refer to any sin. I'm sure you've heard the verse thrown out there. Hey, if you know what's the right thing to do and you don't do it, you're sinning. Well, and that's true, but specifically the context ties that verse to how we handle money and our business. If you know what's right to do and you don't do it, you're sinning the covert violation of conscience is no different than the overt violation of the commandments if you know it's right and you don't do it it's sin and jesus said to the pharisees in john 9:41 if you were blind you would have no sin but since you say we see your sin remains and he's dealing with their integrity and where the heart was they knew better They knew better than what they were doing. And he says, because you claim to see, because you claim awareness of the life that you're living, you are in sin. Now, what he's getting at here again is the danger of the arrogance of financial self-preservation. The word arrogance, note this in verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. Well, even that word is tied to earthly possessions. It's alazonia, and it means empty assurance as related to things. Empty assurance, accumulating things, stuff building up in our houses, our junk, our our garbage. You know that it piles up around us. Who was I talking to on Sunday about this? Leif and Eileen moving to Colorado, and we were talking about the joy of moving is getting rid of your stuff. You know, Cheryl and I have been in our house now what fourteen years. Oy vey, you should see it. It's just all around us. Where does it come from? I think I think it populates during the night. It starts to show up. All this stuff around us, and he says, This is arrogance to think that by having all of these possessions that you're secure. Your security is not in what you have. Keep a finger here and turn back to Matthew chapter six. And again, listen to the words of Jesus, because everything that Yaakov is teaching us parallels the teachings of Christ. Especially in these last couple chapters. Matthew chapter 6, looking at verse 19, he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so often we go, yeah, 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 that's real nice spiritual teaching, Jesus. Oh, we might not say that out loud. But have you considered perhaps at some point the idea of investments and security and retirement and portfolios and all these other things that our world says you've got to have this. you got to have this. Now I'm not I'm not saying you should be financially stupid, okay? Stewardship is another discussion. Being good stewards of what God has given us. But how often are we willing to sit down and just take Jesus at his word? He says in verse 24 No one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. He didn't say you can't be wealthy and follow the Lord. He said you can't serve God and wealth. Typically those who are wealthy and in good standing with the Lord and loving Jesus and walking with Him can't help their wealth. It just kind of keeps coming. You know, It keeps happening to them. They just somehow they make money and they don't even know how, and they could tell you how. It's the blessing of the Lord, and I'm convinced of this, and I've said this before, that God blesses in the way that we can handle. You know, He gives us what He knows we can handle, and no more, no less. Some go wolf. Well, He must not think I can handle very much. Well, maybe not. (laughs) Or maybe he knows that you're exactly the right person to not have a lot because it just doesn't matter. And if it doesn't matter to you, praise the Lord. That's a Jesus attitude. Remember, Jesus was homeless. What, what, What stuff could Jesus claim? By the end of his life, and I mean no disrespect by this, a nice pair of underwear. You know, one solid garment that the soldiers cast lots for. That's all Jesus owned. All He had in His possession. 33 years and that's all He could make of His life? Praise God His focus was not on amassing things. You know, in in Yaakov's letter, and and stay say here in Matthew 6 just a little bit longer, but in this letter, the issue, again, is not about making plans, and it's not about doing business, and it's not about working, and it's not about providing for our families. It is faith in the security of your own financial future. It's when you begin to actually believe that you are securing yourself. That now you can rest. That now the barns are full so I can eat, drink, and be merry. And that is dangerous. You know what futures are, right? Investopedia.com says, there actually is one, says financial contracts obligating the buyer to purchase an asset or the seller to sell an asset at a predetermined future date and price. (laughs) Do you know what's going to happen tomorrow? And yet, futures is what the stock market is truly all about. In fact, yesterday, the Dow jumped, right at the beginning of the day, jumped 160 points at opening bell. Why? Because two of the major markers, 3M and Caterpillar, both posted, we're doing great! And all the investors went, yeah! And it shot up. But then both 3M and Caterpillar also said, and we're probably not going to do a whole lot better. And it tanked 400 points. Why? Because investors are more interested in futures than they are in the immediate reality. Hey, if you're investing in Caterpillar, you're doing very well. This is, it was good news yesterday morning. But hey, they're at the top of their game. So I'm going to start losing money. Better get out. And the Dow went down. <coughs> Interesting. I look at that and I say, come now. Come now there's only one way to have peace and certainty about your future and in verse 25 of Matthew 6 Jesus says for this reason I say to you do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink nor for your body as to what you will put on it's not life more than food and the body more than clothing now that that line is not life more than food I struggle with that a bit but I'll, I'll, I'll take that from Jesus Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Listen, are you not worth more than they? Do you believe here tonight you are worth more than the barn sparrow that flees or flies through your yard? Do you believe that? I mean, Jesus is really making a serious practical point here. He says, and who of you by being worried can add a single hour to his life? Why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? See, you know what? While you're a vapor physically, you have a spirit that is eternal, that God is concerned with. And focused on. And calling to. And Jesus said, do not worry then. Saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? The Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. And at the end of that verse, I hit a point in my life where I actually had to say, do I buy that? Am I willing to invest in that? Is that true? See, first the kingdom, and His righteousness, and all these things He is going to see to. I, th- one of the best questions I've ever been confronted with is do I believe Jesus when He says that? If I do, what am I worried about? If I don't, well, that's another thing. But Jesus says, so do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. We can go back to Yaakov. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, there are two great certainties about things that shall come to pass. One is that God knows and the other is that we do not know. (laughs) So presumptuous profiteers... And the second thing that happens now is Yaakov takes them into a perilous prophecy. It is a last day's prophecy beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. I had never seen this before, but my friends, I believe this is an actual prophetic word that Yaakov is writing. And he's speaking across 2,000 years, not even to those immediate But 2,000 years of church history and it's landing right here in this generation and he's talking to us. And he's speaking to the American Christian. He is at least speaking to the Christian who is doing pretty well for himself or herself. And he's saying, come now. It's the last days. Look at your storage. Those who bank on their bucks, these are the last days. What is our investment knowing the Lord is near? If I truly believe, as we say here all the time, He could come tonight. He may be here next week. I hope so. He might show up by the end of 2018. I'll tell you what, it's looking dicey in Israel these days. We'll talk about that a week from Sunday. If we truly believe in the imminence of Jesus' return, where is our investment? Where is our trust? Where is our hope? The Lord is near. Verse 4, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Hmm. And this is a serious rebuke against the penny-pinching stinginess of those who don't consider the laborers in the fields. Listen, this is especially about stinginess where harvesting is concerned. There are two things going on. One is a local concern, that is, Yaakov concerned for certain landowners that are ripping off their tenants, they're not paying their workers. What their workers have worked hard for and deserve. You've got a weird dynamic in the church because all of a sudden, for the first time in history, there's no class in this religion. Isn't that nice? There's no class among us. We have no class. <laughs> He's you know, all of a sudden now you can have a slave and a master attending Sunday service together as equals before the cross. This is different now. You can have landowners and their tenants and they're worshiping the same God and it's entirely likely that part of the contention and conflict that was in the church is landowners are not paying those who are working for them what they deserve and they're all trying to show up at church together and it's not working out real well. And so there is definitely a prophetic word here to anyone who has employees and doesn't care well for them. Doesn't pay them their due. Withholds funds from them. But, specifically, he's talking to the outcry of those who did the harvesting that has now reached the ears of the Lord of Sava'ot. And I have wondered, not only about local concern or concern for those who owe wages to their workers, but I've wondered about this in the church. And I have wondered this over a lifetime now of, of, of ministry and how churches handle they're paid staff. Now I'm treading into difficult waters here. I want to say before I say anything else, you do need to understand this, that this fellowship treats its staff well. This fellowship is among the more generous that, that I have seen, that I have been part of. But I have seen over and over and over where the landowners have not paid the harvesters where churches have not cared for those who are working for the church, and their cry has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Note that it's not the Lord of the Sabbath. It's not that their cry has now come to the ears of the Lord who says, yeah, give those harvesters rest. No. Their cry has come to the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, which means the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. God is called the Lord of Hosts 239 times in the Hebrew Scriptures. That is a name, a designation, that for a Jewish person would raise the hairs on the back of your neck a bit. This is a serious, powerful God who controls all the armies of heaven. The Lord of Hosts. This designation is only used twice in the New Testament. Right here. And in one other place, that's Romans 9.29, which quotes Isaiah 1.9, which reads as follows, Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom and we would be like Gomorrah. What he's saying is you do not want to be on the wrong side of the Lord of hosts. More on this in just a second. Look at verse 5. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. (laughs) Just this last week, we're sitting around the counter and we're talking about who we would eat if we were in a crisis situation (laughs) in my family. And David's sitting there, you know, plump little David, and I'm like, well, you know... David's young and tender. And David said, Yeah, but Dad, you're aged to perfection. (laughs) I left the table. Got out of there quickly. (laughs) You fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous. He does not resist you. Why does the righteous not resist? Because he knows his future. He's not worried about it. The righteous mistreated knows their future. Even if his wages are withheld right now, he knows the Lord provides. She knows what's coming. So the righteous aren't worried about it. The presumptuous profiteer does not know his or her future. Is not thinking about what may actually be coming. He or she invests only in futures for their future. Packing up storage units, you know, filling them full. Boy, that's a huge business. By the way, if you want to make a buck in the world today, just uh, purchase some storage units because people can't get enough of them. We need places to keep our extra stuff that we're never going to use again. So, this is a rule right here in my household. If the shirt hangs in the closet more than a season and is unworn, it's gone. Toss it. You're not going to wait. It's not coming back around. We've had this conversation, it's not coming back in style but people who are just building up and, and, and investing for ease in years to come. And Jesus told a specific parable about such a foolish person. The man who fills up his barns and realizes his barns are overflowing so he builds bigger barns so that he can fill those barns with the overflow from his original barns. And Luke chapter 12, verse 20, God said to him, You fool! This night your soul is required of you and who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, the reason why this whole section, especially these first six verses of chapter 5, the reason why I said I believe this is a prophetic word by James is I have read the fulfillment. Let me read it to you now. It's out of Revelation chapter 18. Verse 9 says, "...the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and live sensuously with her, will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning. Remember Sunday we talked about weeping and mourning and misery and being miserable now. A misery that is unto repentance. A godly sorrow that works effectively in our lives. That man, if you're going to mourn, mourn now, don't mourn then. Because there will be those who mourn then. Revelation 18 By the way, our study through Revelation is just around the corner. Lord willing. (laughs) Revelation 18 is about the fall of commercial Babylon, which during the Tribulation, by my understanding, is going to be the commercial center of the world. This will be the greatest flow of money. This will be a massive city into which and out of which all the money of the world flows and they're going to see the smoke of her burning. Verse 10 of Revelation 18 says, Standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Whoa, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their any anymore Cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood and every article of ivory, every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble, and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and it's like walking through Costco. (laughs) And cattle and sheep and cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves and human lives. All bought and sold. The fruit you long for has gone from you. And all the things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you. And men will no longer find them. The merchants of these things who became rich from her. Will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment. Weeping and mourning saying. Whoa. woe! the great city. She who is clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet. And adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste. And every shipmaster, and every passenger and sailor, and as many as make their living by the sea, stood at a distance and were crying as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning, saying, Whoa, woe, the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth. For in one hour she has been laid waste. John prophesied that in the late 90s. I think Yaakov was speaking to the same thing. Think about this. How long does it take to amass and to store up treasures a a career a lifetime how quickly does it all go away when Babylon falls one hour it doesn't even take an hour all it takes is a final breath and the vapor of your life is over and all that stuff is worthless so Jesus would say Yaakov would agree invest in the kingdom Invest in the kingdom. Put your money where your breath is. (laughs) And invest in the kingdom of God. You know, generosity is a true measure of godliness. The most godly among brothers and sisters in Christ that I know are always generous people. And you see this. Yakov says in verse 5 of chapter 1, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all how generously generously he is a generous God verse 17 of chapter 1 every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow we were praying this morning and and the thought struck me we don't have enough time in our vapor of, of life to thank God for all of the generous gifts that he has given us I challenge you sit down just try and make a list Just start with every little thing. Start with your first breath in the morning. And then begin to just go through the last week and think about what you have that has come directly from Him. How He has blessed you. What He's given to you. And then start going back a year. Two years. Ten years. You can't do it. There's not enough time to thank God for His generosity which is part of what we're going to do throughout the rest of eternity. Praising and thanking Him for all His goodness. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.18, Instruct those who are wealthy to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Whether it's Paul or Yaakov or Jesus himself, life indeed is eternal. That is our investment. That is to be our focus. Now, stay with this because Yaakov is into the last days. He's already now said this. It's in the last days you have stored up your treasure and now, by contrast, he's going to turn back to his brethren. No more adulterers, sinners, double-minded, and, and, and perverse profiteers. He's now going to come back to the brethren and say in verse 7, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains you too be patient strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near do not complain brethren against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged behold the judge is standing right at the door and with this Shakav reminds us we are to be patient to the parousia Parousia is the Greek word for coming. Anytime you see the coming of the Lord, it's always the parousia of the kurios. The parousia of the Lord. The coming of the Lord. Interesting that here in chapter 5, four times Yaakov refers to the parousia. All at once, very quickly together, and we start to get a sense now that these aren't a bunch of disjointed ideas that are coming from Yaakov. He is talking about how to live in the last days. How to be prepared for the coming of the Lord. And number three in your notes, if you're keeping track of this, is be patient to the parousia. Patient to the coming of the Lord. Each of these four references, but it's a sermon in and of itself, this was almost Sunday morning sermon. Four verses. Each one referring to the coming of the Lord. Look at them quickly here tonight, and you can think this through maybe on your own later. But back in verse 3, he says it's it's in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Well, that's preparation for the parousia. How are you storing up in the last days? Where's your treasure going here in the last days? Are you preparing for the coming of the Lord with any and everything that the Lord has given you? Preparation for the parousia. And then in verse 7 he says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. And that is patience to the parousia. Patience. G. Campbell Morgan said, Sometimes indeed, the very hope of the coming of the Lord has seemed to increase impatience in rather than patience. If you've ever said, "Oh Jesus, I wish you would just come right now. If you ever find your heart a little impatient for the coming of the Lord, and especially again around here we talk a lot about Jesus coming, Jesus return. Can't wait to get into Revelation again and talk those things through and consider it because I don't know any greater motivation in life than thinking about the parousia, the return of Christ. But sometimes all that talk about it can start to make you a little impatient where you begin to think, how long is it going to be, Lord? In fact, we join with how many people in Scripture who have said, How long, O Lord? How long until You come? Listen, if you're feeling a little impatient, pause and pray, because if the Lord were to come right now, someone you know is going to hell. Or at least going into tribulation. That doesn't mean we want to put off. We don't want to start praying, oh Lord, don't come. No, we want Him to come. But we want to use every opportunity until He shows up to bring the Gospel to a lost world. Let it be motivation for us. But be patient, be patient. Farmer's patient. It's going to happen. And then, again, in verse 8 he says, you too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord. So that's more than just patience. That's perseverance. Perseverance for the parousia. By the way, this is all under point 3, patient to the parousia. To be patient is to be prepared. It is to be patient. It's to persevere. And then finally, in verse 9, he says the judge is standing right at the door. Well, that's perspective of the parousia. This is absolutely key to dealing with injustice and unfairness and complaints And conflicts, all of these things that we would worry about, listen, as we saw back in chapter 4, conflicts were happening. What's the best way to deal with conflict? Draw near to God, right? Along with that, remember, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming you weren't here second service you don't know this but I I share that there's a bill assembly bill and I forget the number now uh, but you can look it up there's an assembly bill that just passed in the house in in California it's being sent on to the senate it comes from Governor Jerry Brown and it will effectively ban the sale of Bibles in California which is shocking and I learned about this bill in between services. So I shared it second service, and it broke my heart. There was, I had a heaviness on me. We're talking about mourning anyway, so it was perfect. You know, I just got up there and I said, I am bummed. I am mourning this morning because of what I've just heard. But you know what? By the end of the day, I was remembering, pass the bill. Jesus is coming. Try and take away our Bibles. We'll just start handwriting them if we have to we'll be tweeting them out everywhere. (laughs) One verse at a time, baby! You know, tweet, 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 tweet. I mean, has the church not gone through this before? Jesus is coming. And nothing feeds patience in His coming like the recognition of His coming because I know it's going to be fine. And because I know that's my future, I don't worry about it now. I don't worry about life now. I don't worry about pay now. I don't worry about what's coming. Listen, Jesus said, Matthew 24, verse 32, He said, learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. And you Bible students know the fig tree is a symbol of Israel. And he says, "So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near, right at the door, and for the first time in my life and studying that verse and that passage over and over and over, I realize the parable of a fig tree is not about Israel. It's about Jesus. It is only about Israel, inasmuch as Israel is a sign that Jesus is coming. And he is coming quickly. And so yeah, the fig tree is Israel and yeah, the the reestablishment of the Jewish state blows my mind, I believe. Prophetic fulfillment, May 14th, 1948. By the way, May 14th is coming up. We're going to do a prophecy update on May 13th and talk about this. But wow! I mean, this blew away. Bible scholars and prophecy students when Israel suddenly reemerged on the world scene. A dead nation back a lot. Never happened in all history. No other nation has that ever happened with like with Israel. But the prophecy is not about Israel. Israel in the prophecy is a reminder, a picture that Jesus is coming. Christ is near. He is right at the door. So, yeah, I can be patient for a few more days. Maybe a few more years if I must. Jesus also said something else. That even today as we wait, Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him, I will dine with him, and he with me, and brothers and sisters, that is right now. That is not at a time to come. That's today. He's knocking. Open the door. It's not an evangelical verse. It is a verse for the church. Open the door, he says, to Laodicea. Are you feeling depressed? Are you feeling lethargic? Are you feeling worn down in your life? He's knocking. Open the door. And he will come in and dine with you and the meal will be sweet. (laughs) So patience, brothers and sisters. Patience. Verse 10. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Okay, well we can do that. Moses. What an example of patience. Raised for 40 years in Egypt to be a prince. And then out with sheep for 40 years. Stinking sheep. Where his nickname, Jeff, I'm going to borrow this from you, was Stinky Stinkerton. (laughs) Living with sheep for 40 years. Why? So that he could learn to be a shepherd. That's patience. Learn from that. What about some of the other prophets? Isaiah. Oh, Isaiah who wrote... Chapter 40, verse 31. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Or think about Jeremiah. Talk about a patient prophet. Jeremiah was beaten and put into the stocks. Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 2. He was thrown into prison. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 2. He was lowered into a muddy cistern and left there to starve to death And he would have if someone hadn't gone and pulled him out. Jeremiah chapter 38, verse 6. Consider these these men and their patience. Consider Ezekiel and Daniel who were prophets in exile in Babylon. How about their patience for 70 years? We have the marvelous ninth chapter of the book of Daniel written because Daniel realized after praying and fasting and waiting on the Lord that the 70 years was almost over. But he knew that because they had waited on the Lord. Or Haggai and Zechariah, a couple of post-exilic prophets, they came back with the people into Judea, into a land that had been razed to the ground, destroyed and burned, and began the rebuilding process patiently waiting on the Lord, waiting on Messiah who did not come in their lifetime. Then there's Malachi prophesying of the, of the coming of the Lord. He's going to come. And then after Malachi prophesied that, a day went by and a month and a year and the rest of his life and he died and the Messiah never came. Or John the Baptist, talk about a patient prophet, <laughs> prophesied the coming of Messiah. He's here. He's here now. Get ready. He's on the scene. And then John the Baptist ends up in prison wondering, was I wrong? Was it really you, Jesus? And of course, Jesus set him straight. And John the Baptist lost his head. Consider the patience of the prophets. But before them all, there was a man named Job. Verse 11. We count those blessed who endured. Pause right there just for a minute. You know, it's, it's real easy to do that. It's easy to look at those who suffered and struggled but hung in there to the end of their lives, man, and they did so. And we look back at them and go, oh, yeah, think about them. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Moses, Isaiah. These were blessed men. The prophets who were so blessed. Yeah, probably didn't always feel like it in the moment. We count those blessed who endured. Sometimes we don't see the blessing while we're enduring. But he says, We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance, some translations will say the patience of Job, and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Job has historically been that marvelous picture of patience. Patience. In fact outside of Christian and, and Jewish circles the world recognizes when you talk about the patience of Job people just kind of culturally know oh yeah that, that's, that's, that was that real patient guy guy whose life was trashed but he hung in there through it all he lost everything you I talk about someone who was wealthy and well to do and had it all going on well he lost everything with the exception of a less than helpful wife who advised him in his losing, you should curse God and die. Well, thanks, honey. Losing her might not have been so bad, but he lost everything else. (laughs) And the Bible tells us about Job, that he arose, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshiped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And through all this, Job did not sin nor did he blame God. But hey, Yaakov, he tells us, we count those blessed who endured. And he says, The Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Listen to the end of the story in Job 42. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than the beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. He had seven sons and three daughters, which means he and wifey made up. (coughs) He named the first Jemima... (laughs) She became an aunt, made syrup, right? <laughs> he named the second Kaziah and the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land, no women were found so fair as Job's daughters and their father. I love this. He gave them inheritance among their brothers. You want to talk about equal rights for women? You'll find it in the Bible. You'll find it with the people of God treating women the way they should be treated. You're not going to find it in other religions. You're not going to find it out in secular society. Back in the time of Abraham, that's when we believe Job lived, and for a man to give equal inheritance to his daughters as well as his sons was unheard of. By now, Job is feeling pretty generous. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his sons and his grandsons, which I now know as a hoot. (laughs) For four generations, and Job died an old man and full of days, which is colloquial for... Fat, dumb, and happy. (laughs) It was all good by the end of Job's life. Be patient. Be patient. Because right now you might feel like you're going through hell. Be patient. God is merciful. God is compassionate. And we know the outcome, he says, of the Lord's dealings. The outcome. We don't always feel it in the middle of the mess. But Jesus promises you. The Word promises you. The outcome is going to be marvelous. Be patient. Wait on the Lord. Paul said in Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus. But get this. Come now. In all the dealings of God in the personal life of Job. In all the way, you know, he he worked in Job's life, he taught Job so much. By the end of the book, he restored Job's fortunes, doubled everything. It was fantastic. But you know there was another audience during this time. There were others who were onlookers, if you will, who were being taught by the Lord. Onlookers who are still being schooled even today in the Lord's current dealings with the church. Think about this. How does Job begin? Satan appears with all the sons of God to present themselves before the Lord. And the Lord and Satan have this conversation. Have you considered my servant Job? Well, who else was there? Who was listening in on the conversation? Who else needed to understand something of the grace and compassion and mercy of God? I submit to you the other sons of God, the angelic beings who were all there. And what happened to Job was schooling for them. For the heavenly beings. For principalities and rulers and powers who who don't get it, who don't comprehend the true grace and mercy of God. They've never I mean they they've experienced God in their own having been created and they see his glory, but they don't get grace because they've never needed it. And in Job's life, God begins to explain, this is who I am. This is my heart. This is what I do. And he didn't stop with Job. He continued to teach and to school all the way down through Israel and now to the church. And Paul said in Ephesians 3.8, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Whoa! That's mind-blowing to me. Wow! Through Job, again through Israel, through the church, and through you personally stop and think about this God is teaching angelic beings about his wisdom and grace huh my life experience isn't just for me my life really isn't just about me my life is instruction for others around me as they watch me going through things and instruction for heavenly beings Listen, you never know, and I'll say this, I mean, this is for all of us. Parents, you never know when your life is curriculum for your children. Each of us, we never know when what we're going through is schooling for someone else, even the heavenly beings who are watching God work in you and deal with you and manage you and bring you through horrible situations and hard, painful times and they're watching you have faith in God and they're going, that's incredible. What is that? What's going on? And look at how God's dealing with her or dealing with him and bringing them through and then they see the grace and the mercy of God, the end game of the whole thing and they go, wow, God is wise. God is merciful. God is grace. And they worship my life is curriculum for heavenly beings. Be patient. Be patient. Because listen, your life is more than meets the eye. As Isaiah wrote, Isaiah 64 verse 4, For from days of old they have not heard or perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen a God besides you who acts in behalf of the one who waits for Him. See, Paul calls on that verse. He says, "I has not seen, nor has ear heard that which God has prepared for His people. But Isaiah's translation, I love it, who acts in behalf of the one who waits for Him. (laughs) Be patient. Be patient. Rick, you're just saying be patient because you want to teach longer. Exactly. Verse 12. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Sound familiar? The <laughs> is just borrowing right off of the teaching of Jesus. And in light of the parousia, remember, this is not just a random verse. Verse 12 isn't just like, oh yeah, oh yeah, and, and, and just let your yes be yes and your no be no. He is talking in context. All of this is how to live in the last days. How to live expecting the parousia of Jesus Christ. And in light of this, add to your patience, and this is number four in our ongoing list if you're tracking, add to your patience plain parlays. Simple speech, if that's easier for you. Simple speech, because the express lanes to judgment are opened wide by too many words. As he says, So that you may not fall under Judgment. Too many words are always a problem. Too many words. I'm going to try and shorten mine. Mm-hmm. Proverbs 10.19 When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips is wise. Husbands, just shut up. <laughs> just don't, don't talk. Because it, it doesn't work. All right, how many of you guys... Now, I, I, I was actually... Um, called on this that, that I pick on husbands. Listen, I am a husband. It's all I know. Okay, But how many of you guys have had the experience that you get into an argument with your wife and then she brings up something that you said and you have no concept or no memory of it whatsoever? I just learned. I learned years ago. I just lose. I might as well give up right now because I don't remember anything. Well, you said this. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. And then she can quote it back. You know. Oh. All right. Okay. All right. <laughs> what 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 what's your favorite kind of flower? <laughs> no anybody. Isn't I just husbands. Man, it's too much talk. We get into an argument and we end up saying things we wish we had never said. we start to get, you know, riled up about something and we just shoot off our mouths, where there are many words transgression is unavoidable I love this proverb Proverbs 17.28 even a fool when he keeps silent is considered wise (laughs) shut your mouth and people will think wow you're brilliant (laughs) start talking and that's another thing and again Yaakov is dialing in to the teaching of Jesus Matthew 5 verses 34 through 37 let your yes be yes let your no be no and Jesus says anything more than this is of evil you're just going to get yourself in trouble. Now, are you following the flow of thought here? We await the parousia of the coming of Jesus with patience, with plain speech, and, number five, with praise and prayer. Verse 13, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He's to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. How many times have we said this? I'll say it again tonight. If you are in Jesus Christ, you are a righteous man, you are a righteous woman. Therefore, your prayer can be incredibly effective. Because you have been made righteous by Jesus Christ. So don't play that foolish game of, well, I can't pray because I'm not righteous. If you know Jesus, if you've given Him your life, you are blood washed, you're righteous, pray your heart out. Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again. The sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit. And I read through that passage again. How many times we referred to it. Anytime you're talking about prayer. Man, James 5 is the go-to passage. And I looked at it and I thought... You know, we've read this so many times, we're just going to kind of brush by it on Wednesday night and we'll continue, and and the Lord said no. So we're going to come back to this on Sunday morning and sit in these verses and see if there's more here perhaps than we have seen before. Verse 19. We'll finish up here. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back... Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Here at the end, Yaakov lands at the point of the entire letter. This is why he wrote, to turn strays back to Jesus. And by the way, these strays are Christians. Make no mistake about it. Number six, if you've tracked all of this, is in these last days we are to pursue the prodigals. How do you live in the last days? With patience and plain speech and praise and prayer, pursuing the prodigals and not being a profiteer. Pursue the prodigals. Come now. This phrase, any among you who strays, clearly refers to Christians. If any among you stray, well, who's among us? Who's gathering in the assembly? Who's the ecclesia? Well, it's believers in Jesus Christ. He's talking about Christians who have now wandered from the fold, who have strayed away. It is not when the saints go marching in, it's when the saints go marching off. Pursue them. The saint here is the sinner. The wandering Christian, and he needs turning. And she needs repentance. Now I'm not going to go so far as to say the wandering, straying Christian is lost eternally. But they're certainly lost right now. They're certainly living outside of the covering. They're certainly without fellowship. Have you ever been there in your life? You don't need to raise your hand, but have you been in a place where you were out of fellowship for a season or a time and began to realize, man... I'm not joyful. I'm not where I was. I'm not where I want to be. I need to be around other believers. And maybe you chose not to be around other believers because you realize being around believers can be a problem too. Well, yes it can. We all struggle together, you know, and work through this with the grace and love of God. But I would rather be around a bunch of believers who are problematic than be out there on my own. I'm so thankful for this fellowship, by the way. But the saint who is wandering is the sinner who needs turning. And the question is, in these last days, are our hearts moved to misery and to mourning and to weeping and to gloom over such as these? Over these strays? Yaakov loves the church. Do we? Oh, I love the church. I'm not talking about loving going to church. Do you love the church? Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, who do you know right now who is straying from the fold? And I'm not talking, let me clarify, and I don't believe Yaakov is talking about Christians who have left one fellowship for another. You know, people who have left the bridge because they want to go attend Living Word. Well, you know what? If that's where God wants them to be, great. Okay, I'd rather they be here just because I'm blessed with them being here, but if they're better served there or they serve better there, more importantly, go. Someone is called to, to serve in, at a church in Anacortes, go. If that's where God needs you to be, no problem. That's not who we're talking about. We're talking about people who have left the bridge and they don't go anywhere. Or they've left a fellowship somewhere. Maybe another church in Oak or Anacortes and they've just kind of stopped going to church. Well, yeah, I used to attend such and such a place, but I don't go there anyway. That's the stray, the one who has wandered off. Regarding the stray, the word is planao, where you see, if any among you uh, strays from the truth and one turns him back. Uh, some translations say, if any of you err. Okay, but the word is best translated stray. It means to wander out of the right way, whether by deception or decidedly. Whether you've chosen to or not, it's the person who has strayed, who has wandered. And according to Yaakov, we are to go after them and love them. And I think, and I am guilty of this, we can be too quick to cut people off. Now, now granted, some people need cutting off. I don't mean that meanly, but there are times where church discipline is necessary. And someone needs to be asked to withdraw from fellowship because of the life choices they're making because they are so radically in rebellion to God. Now, when those times happen, they're extreme cases. In fact, the one time in Scripture we see disfellowshipping talked about is when Paul talks about a man who has his father's wife. Okay, so we're talking about something that's pretty extreme. But there are times, there are seasons where someone is cut off from fellowship, but only for a season. Even when it does happen. From First Corinthians to Second Corinthians, we see Paul now saying, hey, restore that man. Bring him back. It's been long enough. But the person who strays away, again, verse 20 says, let the person who returns the one who strays, who turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins, and that verse raises a multitude of spiritual issues. We read that and go, I'm not sure how that squares with my theology. Well, let me encourage you, just for a moment longer here tonight, not to put your theology on verse 20. Let's set our theology aside for a moment and just look at what verse 20 says. It says, if you turn back astray, if you bring someone back to the fold of fellowship who has been off wandering in sin, you will, number one, save his soul from death. Whose soul? His soul. And the his is very specifically referring to the one who strayed. You're going to save his soul from death. What do you mean you'll say... Are you saying that someone out of fellowship is is gonna die? Yeah. Yeah. Actually there are three possibilities here. One is physical death. You're gonna save his soul from physical death. What do you mean? Remember in First Corinthians eleven, people were dying because they were inappropriately taking the Lord's Supper? Physical death. Didn't mean they were going to hell, but they were not handling things right. And Paul says, because of this, some of you are even dying. There's physical death that is the result of our sin. You have a brother or sister who's straying, maybe maybe rather than in fellowship on Sunday morning, they're sitting in a bar on Saturday night, you could save them from death. Do you understand? Physical death. John says in 1 John 5.16, there is a sin leading to death. The Bible is clear. There is sin that leads to physical premature death. That you can die because of the sin being committed. And if you turn someone who is straying back from their straying, from the error of their ways, you might save them from physical death. Praise the Lord. Or maybe he's talking about spiritual death. That someone who's straying and gets turned, gets saved from spiritual death. What are you talking about? I'm talking about the death of hope. The death of joy. The death of peace in the Holy Spirit. death of meaning in life. The death of love. Have you ever seen someone who gets out of fellowship? Do they seem happy in that place? Those that I have talked to over the years who have been out of fellowship typically are bitter. Unhappy directionless, lost. A spiritual death has taken in place. You can save them from that simply by turning them back to fellowship where they can be revived once again in spirit. Physical death, spiritual death, and the third one is, yes, eternal death. By turning back someone who has strayed, you could save them from eternal death. Now, to understand that comes head to head with some theology. Because if you believe that once you've given your life to Jesus, you are saved, and nothing can happen to take away that salvation, and that's where your faith is, and there's a Christian, they've strayed, and Yakov is saying you're going to save them from, from death well, well what about that? What about my theology? What about the security of salvation? Now listen to me, I'm just five minutes, I promise you, and I'm done. And when you say that, you better mean it. I know. The debate of the security <laughs> of salvation, eternal security, has raged on for centuries. And good Christians stand on both sides of the debate. Good Christians believe, once I've given my heart to Jesus, I'm saved. And, and that's never going to end. I can't lose that. And good Christians on the other side say, no, you can't. You've got to remain faithful to the Lord or you, you can lose the whole thing. And uh, wherever you fall on either one, listen, I've got to ask this question. Why does that matter so much to us? Why do we keep having this debate? I mean, really, are, are we looking for easy access passes to heaven? And so if it's not once saved, always saved, then I lose my easy way in? So it has to be, that's my theology? Or, or, or maybe on the other side, am I looking to be let off the hook for accountability? That guy's fault, he got lost. Am I looking to, to shirk accountability or responsibility to God for an, another person? Is it just easier if, if I see a Christian go off the deep end somewhere, is it just easier to go, well, because, you know, they, they became unfaithful. It's their problem. Why does it matter? What my soteriology is. Soteriology just means my theology of salvation. You know what matters? Do you believe in Jesus? That's what matters. So once we've gotten to the point where we say, yes, I believe and I follow Jesus Christ, you know what my responsibility is? It's to go after people who are lost, whether they claim to be Christians or not. Let me put it this way. Opinions on salvation don't save anybody. You're not going to come to heaven's gate and God say, well, were you once saved, always saved? Or do you think you could lose your salvation? Well, I think I could lose our salvation. Loser! Out of here! (laughs) You know, God doesn't care what we think about that. He cares how much we love in the name of Jesus. Do I love a brother or sister who's wandered off enough not to sit here and debate whether or not they're still saved, but just to go love them? And do I love the sinner who doesn't know Jesus enough to bring the gospel message of salvation to them? That's the issue. Are we among those who in the church are going to be, Hebrews 10.25, encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near? whatever your soteriology is listen save a soul from death whether it's physical, spiritual or eternal makes no difference go save a wanderer and you save him from death and you cover a multitude of sins which is great we can all use a covering of a multitude of sins Proverbs 10.12 says hatred stirs up strife but love covers all transgressions that's where that's coming from but whose sins are being talked about here? It'll cover a multitude of sins. Is he talking about the strays or is he talking about the turners? If you go turn astray, you get a bunch of your sin covered, or or he gets his sin, sin covered, and honestly, biblically, going after strays does impact the one who goes after the stray. If you're the one who heads out to bring someone back, Ezekiel chapter 3 verse 21 says, If you have warned the righteous man that the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning, and you have delivered yourself, Ezekiel. Or, Paul said to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.16, Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. You know what Les always says? says, I'm going to get saved some more. (laughs) Have you heard him say that? I need to get saved some more. I don't know how that works because once I'm saved, I feel like I'm saved, but there is a reality here that week in, week out, every message, every sermon, every study that I give, I get deeper into my salvation. I really do. So I guess I get saved some more. Thanks, Les. That said, my opinion here, my opinion is that the covering or the hiding of a multitude of sins relates directly to the sins of the person who strayed. Psalm 32, verse 1 says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. 1 Peter 4, 8, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. And here, Yaakov stops. Which is kind of weird. He ends here because faith that works is all about love. True faith in Jesus Christ expresses itself in love. Whether we're chasing down the stray or going after the lost or simply loving each other enough to not be contentious. It all works. It's all love. And so Yaakov stops. But this it's weird. The end of this letter... Is stranger than most to me. Because you get down to the end of verse 20 and you, you want to turn the page and go, okay, what's verse 21 say? And there's a Peter. The letter's done. It, it's over. This is unlike almost every single one of the New Testament letters. They all have greetings, farewells, fond farewells. They all have a benediction. Nothing here. He just stops. And it reminds me of another lessism, if I may. He says, we never finish, we just unhook. Mm -hmm. Or we just disconnect. And I realize coming to the end of Yaakov's letter that that's what he's doing. The letter's not over. Now we live it. It continues. It's like the book of Acts. There's no Acts chapter 29. There should be. Well, there is. We're living in Acts 29. That's us. That's the church ongoing. And it's open ended, and this letter ends in the same way, open endedly. So don't be presumptuous or perilous when it comes to finances. We are to be patient to the parousia, living lives that are marked by plain speech, praises, prayers, pursuing the prodigal and the lost. And again, if this seems unfinished, so are we. We're not done. There is still work to be done. Be patient until He calls us home. Father, that's our prayer tonight. We end with this with a a prayer for patience. A patience that is enduring. patience that is strengthening. Lord, we pray for patience not only to the coming of Jesus, but patience with one another. That our contentions and our strife and our conflicts would dissolve in patience. We pray, Father, for patience with the non-believing world. And I think about what's going on down in California, just a couple states away, and how this could snowball. And and Lord, how there are those who are vehemently and violently and angrily coming against You and Your Word. Would You help us, Lord, not to be defensive, but even to be patient with them? Because we're to be patient with those who are lost and just keep bringing the Gospel. Help us to be patient, Lord, with those who have wandered away from fellowship, those who are prodigals, and send us after them. Lord, we pray by the power of Your Spirit that we might begin to see people turned back to You who once knew You, even as much as we want to see people turn to You for the first time. Help us to be patient. In Jesus' name, Amen.